We are glad you are listening to this audio recording produced by Cross Point Presbyterian Church of Park City, Utah. For more information regarding the ministries of Cross Point Presbyterian Church, please visit us online at www.crosspointpca.org. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 1. You can find Deuteronomy chapter 1 in the Pew Bible on page 125 or 145, depending on which version of the Pew Bible you're looking at. Now this morning we're continuing our sermon series in the book of Deuteronomy, in which we're calling this sermon series, A Call to Covenant Relationship. And if you haven't, I would encourage you to go to our website and listen to the sermon last week. It was a lot of material, but we covered Genesis all the way through the end of Numbers. It gets us here to this particular point in the story of the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 1. So let me encourage you to check that out on our website. I'm going to ask you, how many of you know what the initials DTR stand for? Anybody in here know what DTR stands for? Do you know what it stands for? Or what does it stand for? Determine yeah, determine, define the relationship. Okay. So in college, this was a big deal. When a guy liked a girl, they would hang out. They would spend time together. They would go out to eat. They would go on group dates. But at some point in time, there would be this question about what are we? And where are we in this relationship? And so on the campus where I went, I went to community college for two years, and then I went to Mississippi College, which is a small private liberal arts college just outside Jackson, Mississippi. This is what we called, oh, have you had the DTR, the define the relationship or determine the relationship? And you would sit down and say, okay, this is now official. You know, we're committing ourselves into a relationship in which you are a boyfriend or you are a girlfriend. Now, the interesting thing is that uh, even though I knew that this was protocol in relationships, when I met Lori, it didn't happen that way. We started hanging out in a group, and we started spending more and more time together. And when it became clear to me that I was uh, very interested in pursuing her for a romantic relationship. I'm the kind of person, being a, a preacher and a person who likes to talk, I rehearse things in my head. So I imagined what it would be like that uh, we'd have this conversation in which I would say, you know, I've enjoyed spending time with you. And, you know, I really want to take this to the next level, and I want this to be a committed, exclusive kind of relationship where you're my woman and I'm your man kind of thing. So I rehearsed this, and I practiced, and I know everything that I want to say. Well, we got together the next time, and we were watching a movie in her apartment on the couch, and I just start holding her hand. And when I reached over and I grabbed her hand for the first time, I felt kind of like this initial like excitement and shock, but also a little bit of unsettledness. And so... We continue on the rest of the evening. We eat dinner. We watch the movie. And then we get ready to leave. She says, so what's going on between the two of us? I was like, what do you mean what's going on between the two of us? We've already had this discussion. We've defined the relationship. We're committed. And she's like, no, we haven't. I've rehearsed this conversation so many times in my head that what I imagined had become my reality. Now, when we did have that conversation, she thankfully agreed to what I was offering, but we defined the relationship because we needed to know where we stand in relation to one another. The book of Deuteronomy is one big defined the relationship in which God, speaking through Moses, reveals what it looks like for the people of Israel to be in a relationship with the living God. Now, the Bible teaches that our most fundamental or foundational relationship is with the God who created us. One pastor talks about the damage that a tornado did in a home in his neighborhood. He says the house 
was dislodged off, off of its foundation ever so slightly, just a couple of inches maybe. And even though from you know, the street the house looked like it had been undamaged, there was no other option for the owners but to demolish it and to rebuild. Why? Because the foundation had been compromised. And when a house's foundation had been compromised, you have to raise it and start all over. You and I, the most fundamental, the most foundational relationship we have is not with a husband, not with a wife, but it's with the living God. And when that relationship begins to crumble, then it's only a matter of time before everything else will fall. Now, last week we said the book of Deuteronomy could be summarized this way. God was faithful and gracious in the past. And we looked at that. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. God is faithful in the present and God will be faithful and gracious in the future. Now, the book of Deuteronomy is significant. It may be the most significant book in all of the Old Testament. Jesus quotes from the book of Deuteronomy more than any of the other books in the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible. There are almost a hundred references from the book of Deuteronomy in the New Testament. So it's significant for us to understand what the book of Deuteronomy means and how it shapes our faith as Christians. It's almost as if the New Testament writers were looking through the lens of Jesus and pointing back to Deuteronomy saying, this is the way the covenant people of God are supposed to live. This is God's intention for his people to live in covenant relationship with him, trusting him, obeying him, following him where he leads. But we know that that covenant relationship gets broken. It gets broken by Adam and Eve. It gets broken by the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai. We break that covenant relationship. And that's why Jesus comes to make a commitment to his people that cannot be broken. And we mentioned last week the word Deuteronomy just is a, set, is a translation that means the second law. And that's where we get the title of the book. Um, you know, the majority of this book really is a sermon that Moses is giving to the nation of Israel. Like the book of Leviticus, the story doesn't really advance chronologically or historically, but it kind of takes place in one location as Moses is giving this final word to the people of Israel before they're about to go in and claim the promised land. Now, Israel, just so you kind of have a geographical context, they're in the central rift valley that was east of the Jordan River. This location is mentioned in Numbers chapter 36 and is referred to as the plains of Moab. They're across the Jordan River just a ways from Jericho. But it's been 40 years since the nation of Israel was led out of Egypt by Moses. So if you would, let me invite you to stand as we read God's word. Beginning in verse 1, these are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness and the Arabah opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dezaab. It's 11 days journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. And in the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them. Skipping down to verse 8. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me invite you to be seated. And again, we're going to be moving through this and looking at large chunks of Deuteronomy. But we see in this particular passage that there are 
Deuteronomy reminds us that biblical faith is grounded in a relationship with the living God. We don't make up the terms, but it's a system where we're reconciled and we're brought into relationship with God according to the terms that he sets forth for us. Now, the Bible uses a word specifically for this kind of relationship. I've mentioned it several times already this morning. It's the idea of covenant. And in a covenant, what God is doing is he's describing who he is. The right that he has to command his people and to expect and demand obedience of us. He lists for us the requirements of this covenant so that we might live a life of blessing. But he also sets forth the consequences of rebellion and disobedience. He promises us blessing or curse. And we see this in the story of the nation of Israel. Now, the story of the Bible up to this point, we've seen that God enters into a covenant with his people. Now, on their part, what they're supposed to do is they're supposed to trust God. They're supposed to listen and obey. And that will be a significant theme throughout the book of Deuteronomy is hear, is listen. And the idea is that when you hear God speaks, and then you do what he says. And so this idea of listening and obedience go hand in hand. God enters into this covenant with his people, and he promises to love them, to protect them, to provide, and to guide them through life. And on their part, the people are responsible to trust, to listen and obey, and then to follow him wholeheartedly wherever he leads. But as we look last week at Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, we see that this covenant relationship that God enters in with his people is broken on numerous occasions. Israel, as soon as they say, oh yes, we will enter into this covenant on Mount Sinai, and they wholeheartedly and excitedly agree to the terms, as soon as Moses, as soon as Moses goes up to the top of Mount Sinai, what do they do? They come to Aaron and they say, Aaron, we want you to make us a God that we can worship. And so they offer all this gold jewelry, he melts it down, and he makes a calf, an idol, for the people to worship. They violate the covenant almost immediately. And so God, in his judgment, he punishes the people. They're led out into the wilderness, but because he is merciful, he shows grace to them. He renews the covenant again and again. And after they go into the wilderness and he's leading them to the land that has been promised to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob, after 40 years, he's about to let the second generation go into Canaan. Now, the first few chapters of this book, what you'll see is that it's all about our covenant relationship with God. What Moses does is he begins with a long story of the retelling of how Israel has failed in her relationship with God, how they had broken covenant. Now, if you think about it, it would have been a difficult sermon to listen to. We see how he highlights Israel's failure to trust God in verse 2. When he says, It is eleven days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. But in the fortieth year, on the first day of the eleventh month, Moses spoke to the people. He's reminding them that it really should have only taken eleven days to get here. But because of their hard-heartedness, because of their rebellion, because of the judgment that they were under, it's now been 40 years. And so he's not pulling any punches. He's saying, look, if you're going to enter into this land, if you're going to remain in this land, and he even goes on and says, when you get kicked out of it, because he knows the hearts of this people, he says, when you get kicked out of it, kicked out of it the way back into the land is going to be this covenant relationship with God. And so he's highlighting Israel's hard-heartedness and rebellion. He's retelling them a story they know too well of how Israel... 
coming to the border of the promised land after God had delivered them from Egypt. They sent spies to scout this land, one from each tribe. So these 12 spies go out and they see this land. They see it's a good land. It's a land in which they will be blessed, but they also see that it's a land that's well fortified and a land that's occupied by giants. And so their hearts sink. They lose their nerve and they melt in fear. Instead of trusting God, who had delivered them out of the hands of Egypt, who had provided for them in the wilderness, they cower in fear. And so God brings judgment. It says that every adult over 40 years will remain in the wilderness and will not be able to enter the promised land. So they walk in circles. They just wander around in the wilderness. But now things are changing. Now everyone has died off and they're standing on the edge of the promised land. The promise that God made is about to come to fruition. They're about to finally enter, verse 8 says, into the land that the Lord swore to give to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to all their descendants. Moses is saying, God is faithful. Even in light of this faithless people's disobedience, God has kept his promise. God enters into a covenant with Abraham back in Genesis 12. We looked at this last week. In which the Lord says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And so Abraham was to leave everything that he knew, his family, his homeland, and to trust God that God would lead him to a good place. A land that God would show him. A land he had never been before. God also promised that he would give him this land as an inheritance to his descendants as well. But what we see is at the end of Genesis... All the way through the start of Exodus is that for 400 years, the people of Israel lived away from this land that God had promised Abraham. But God delivers Israel out of Egypt through the plagues, many signs and wonders and miracles. He destroys Pharaoh's army as they give chase through the Red Sea. And so here in verse 8, Moses is telling the, the people of Israel, you're about to go into the promised land. Remember, God made a promise a long time ago to our ancestors, Abraham. Isaac and Jacob. And you're now about to experience the fulfillment of that promise. You can trust God. But he also says that he'll make him a great people. In that covenant, he says, I will make of you a great nation. God takes this one couple. Remember, we said, you know, if you're going to be a great nation, the way you start is you have at least one child. But at this particular point, they didn't have any offspring. And they were, in, uh, you know, a little older in age. And so the prospects of having a big family and becoming a great nation actually look very dim. And suspect. That's why in Genesis 15, God becomes more specific and he brings Abraham out to look up in the sky. He says, look towards the heavens, number the stars if you're able to count them. And he says, this will be the count of your offspring. He gives him kind of a, a reminder. You know what I told you? You remember when I first called you? I said, I'd make you a great my nation. I know it doesn't look like I'm, I'm coming through on my word, but look at the stars in the sky. That's how big. Your offspring will one day be. He reassures him that even though Abraham didn't have any children at that time, that God was faithful and would keep his promise. And then we read in verse six, and Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And this is a theme that gets repeated throughout the scriptures that Abraham believed or trusted what the Lord said was true, and it was counted to him as righteousness. We just talk about this when we talk about salvation, that we don't earn our salvation. We don't work for our salvation. We don't merit our salvation by the things that we do. But we believe that God has done everything necessary for us to be saved in the person of Jesus. We believe 
And then we trust that what God says will be true. That those who put their faith in Christ believe the gospel that God saves by grace through faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. That God credits that to you and to me and to all of his covenant people as righteousness. Not a righteousness of our own, but a righteousness that comes to us by believing the gospel of Jesus. So we continue. Abraham was saved by faith. We are saved by faith. But Moses goes on to highlight that God promised Abraham, I'll give you land and now you're about to enter the land. I'll make you a great and mighty nation. And in verses 12 through 18, Moses goes on to recount the story of the nation of Israel. He says, we were so numerous that I couldn't deal with all the problems of leading such a great and mighty people. So I divided them up and I appointed leaders over you to handle these particular issues. God promised our ancestor Abraham he'd make him a mighty nation. And look, we're so large that we have to be grouped in these 12 tribes. God was faithful and kept his promise. But God also promises to Abraham that he will bless him. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What we see is the favor of God is on Abraham. But not only on Abraham, but all of his descendants. At the end of Numbers, we briefly covered this. But as they're going through the plains of Moab, the king of Moab, he sees this great people marching through the valley, the, the plains, and he realizes he has to do something about it. So he calls forth kind of this pagan sorcerer, uh, 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 and they, they ask him, will you please curse this people? His name's Balaam. And Balaam goes out, and he wants to take the money from the king of Moab, and he wants to curse the nation of Israel, but he can't. And he says, I can't curse. I can only bless those whom God has blessed. And so here the nation of Israel is down the plain. But they don't even know what's going on up in the mountains of Moab. But God is blessing his people and they don't even recognize it. They're not even aware of it. Sometimes God's at work in your life and you don't even know it. And it's not going to be until some point down the road that you're able to look back and connect the dots and see exactly what it was that he's doing. See, sometimes God doesn't write the story the way we think it should be written. Sometimes the story takes a lot of twists and turns. Sometimes there's lots of ups, and sometimes there's some really hard downs. And if you were to write the story the way you wanted it, it would take you in an entirely different direction. But God knows what's going on up in the mountain. He knows that he's blessing you, even though that you're not aware of it. So you can trust that he's a faithful God that keeps his promises. Now, in Abraham's day, this blessing gets expressed through his prosperity and through kind of military power. Those around him come to respect him because they see that God is with him, that he's flourished and prospered. Now, Israel is about to possess a physical land in the Middle East. And all the descendants of Abraham, even those ones who didn't trust or believe that walked with God, get to experience this favor. Now, it's a physical blessing. Israel experiences some military success over their enemies and some material prosperity. Kind of the peak of the nation of Israel is under the reign of David and his son Solomon. There, during the Solomon, the nations multiplied even more. They experienced relative peace from all their enemies around them. And God had given them worship in the temple. So God was a faithful God, even when Israel was a faithless people. And he keeps all of these promises he made to Abraham. But Moses also is telling them, as we go on through the sermon, that God is sovereign. That God does what he wants, and he doesn't care what you and I or anybody else thinks about it. No one's going to stop his plan. No one's going to turn back his hand. When God declares that something will happen, he will fulfill his will. 
God is sovereign. And that's good news for you and me. God promised Abraham to give him a land, a people, a blessing. And God fulfills that promise. Even though it looks like at every turn, the nation of Israel is trying to do everything they can to prevent this plan from happening. God is faithful to do what he says. He's sovereign. God makes a promise and he keeps that promise. But that doesn't mean that individual descendants of Abraham didn't disqualify themselves from experiencing these blessings. We know that a whole generation wander in the wilderness and don't get to experience the benefits of going into the promised land. We know that Moses himself, because he, in defiance of what God tells him to do, and his frustration with the nation of Israel, rather than just simply speaking to the rock, strikes it with his staff, is disqualified himself from ever entering into the promised land. So Moses doesn't even pull any conscience with himself. He deals with the issue that sin is a very real and destructive force. But God is sovereign, and he accomplishes his purpose even in spite of our rebellion. So Moses tells the people, see, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. But do not be afraid or dismayed in verse 21. Now God has set before the nation of Israel a bright and prosperous future. And he tells them specifically, go in and take the land that your God has given and promised to your forefathers. But he also includes this phrase, do not be afraid or dismayed. Because he knows what lies ahead. There's a bright and prosperous future, but the people have been wandering in the wilderness. They've traveled a hundred miles and they're probably tired. And they're probably questioning, does God care? Has he forgotten about them? And they're spies. As they go out and they come back and report, they say, it's a really good land. It's the kind of place where we want to be. But the problem is, they have these well-fortified cities and these giants live there. They said, we've seen the sons of Anakim there in verse 28. Now, the Anakim were known as giants. And so the nation of Israel, their history is not as a warring tribe or warring people, but as slaves who made bricks in Egypt. And now they've been wandering in the wilderness. So they probably don't have the weapons and they probably don't have the training to be a skilled people in battle. And yet now what God is saying is, go in and possess this land that's occupied by fortified cities and giants. And so their fear overwhelms them. Their fear causes them to be paralyzed. There are all kinds of things to be afraid of. All kinds of things for you to be afraid of, for me to be afraid of. There's things with our families. There's things with our health. There are things with our jobs. There are things with our finances. There are things with our relationship. And if we let fear prevent us from trusting the Lord and moving in obedience, then we will be paralyzed like the people of Israel. They go into their tents and they begin to share the report and they say, where can we go? Our brothers, speaking of the spies, they demoralize with this report in verse 28. They tell us the people of the land are taller. They're more powerful than we are. And their towns are large with walls rising high into the sky. And so they work themselves up into a frenzy. They look at what's ahead rather than looking to the God that's provided for them at every stage of the journey. And their fear calls them to no longer trust and to ultimately disobey. If you let fear control you. I'm not saying you won't be afraid of things. There are going to be things in your life that you're going to be afraid of. But if you let that fear control you, it will lead to a breakdown of that covenant relationship. Like if you're insecure and you want people to desperately like you, then you do things to try to make them like you. 
And then what happens is it becomes kind of this process in which you're tempting to try to make people like you and you just simply push them further and further away. Why? Because you're afraid of being alone. And because you're afraid of being alone, you do things that reinforce this reality of being alone. But you don't let fear drive you. Rather than looking ahead, you look to the God that's been faithful over the course of your life. Note what they believe about God. They begin to question the goodness. They murmur in their tents. The Lord hated us. That's why he brought us out of the land of Egypt. To give us in the hand of these people. So they might destroy us. So they're worked up in a frenzy. And they're afraid. And they say, God's not good. He brought us here so these people will destroy us. So Moses does a couple of things. He focuses on the fact that God is a warrior. That's not one of the typical ways that we think of God, but that's what Moses says in verse 30. He says, the Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you. Last night we were sitting uh, watching YouTube, I think. I don't remember how I got on this, but somehow Mike Tyson popped up. And so I went to YouTube and I was watching old video clips of Mike Tyson. I don't know if you've ever done this, but he may be the greatest fighter that's ever lived in the course of my lifetime. But imagine if somebody said, you know what, Robbie, you're going to have to, for charity, go out and box 12 rounds against your opponent. But then somebody comes and says to you, you know, the final hour, you know what, Robbie, never mind. We have somebody who's going to take your place. We have somebody who's going to go in front of you into the ring. And he himself is going to fight for you. And then they turn and they introduce Mike Tyson. Even at, what, 50 years old Mike Tyson might be right now, I would still take his chances in the ring as being much better than mine. That's what Moses is saying to the nation of Israel. You're terrified, but stop looking at what's ahead. Stop looking at how small you are and how big the people are and look to the God who's a warrior who goes in front of you and who fights for you. So even though Israel's afraid, they don't want to go to battle, Moses says your God's a warrior and he fights for you. But he's not only a warrior, Moses highlights that God was tender and compassionate. When Israel was in the wilderness, when they were hungry and thirsty, God provides food and water. And Moses says in verse 31, The Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son. Not just occasionally, but all the way through the wilderness wandering. God was there providing for his people. So he's a strong warrior who fights for them in battle. But he's also a tender, compassionate God who provides for the weakness of his people. He also says that he'll be a guide to lead you. He reminds them that he went before you in the way to seek you out and he showed you the place to pitch your tents, the fire by night, the cloud by day, to show you the way you should go. He said he'll lead you. And because he's a faithful God and because he's a sovereign God, because he's a warrior God who will fight for you, because he's a compassionate God who loves and cares for you, even in your weakness, you can trust him to lead you where you need to go. We talked about the book of Deuteronomy as being a renewal of the covenant where God initiates or renews the relationship to love, to guide, and to protect his people. They're supposed to, on their part, trust and obey and follow him wholeheartedly wherever he leads. Moses gives to us what that picture looks like in the person of Caleb. Caleb is one of the twelve spies. And he says down in verse 35, Now when the Lord heard your complaint, he became very angry. So he solemnly swore, not one of you from this wicked generation will live to see the good land I swore to your ancestors. So he's reminding him, this is what you are. You complained, and so God says, you don't want to go, you're afraid, then I won't let you go. All except for Caleb. He will see this land. Why? Because he has followed the Lord completely. 
I will give to him and his descendants some of the very land he explored during his scouting mission. Caleb saw what all the other spies saw. He saw the fortified cities. He saw the giants. But what he also saw was that God could be trusted. And that God would do what he promised. So nothing's really changed for you and me. We still live in exactly the same kind of way, a covenant relationship with God in which God has pledged himself and we can trust him that he'll be faithful and gracious in the present and he'll be faithful and gracious in the future the same way he's been faithful and gracious in the past. God promises to love and to guide and protect. But he makes promises to Abraham that ultimately get fulfilled and you and I get to experience those promises. A land, not just a physical land in the Middle East, but a destination, a heavenly, an eternal, an everlasting land that we will go to. A people. You and I, we don't belong and live individually as isolated spiritual free agents. But the people around here, the other people, the redeemed around this community, around this country, around this world, and throughout all of history, we belong to this covenant redeemed people that God has rescued. And then a blessing. Think about it. You and I, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, can now boldly come into the presence of a holy God. We experience his presence, his favor, and his power in our lives now because of Jesus. God is a faithful God. He's a sovereign God. And you can trust him. Let's pray.